The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to be in Revelation 17 and also uh, flip into a couple other passages beforehand to lay the foundation as we've been doing for the book of Revelation. If you need a Bible to borrow, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. We've got some coming down the middle aisle there. And while they're coming down here, just a reminder, we've got nursery provided. For four years on down, we've got a, a crying listening room as well out that lobby through the hall to the right. Or if you just need to take your young one out, run around a little bit, exert some energy, you're welcome to do that as well. Uh, two times a month, we have children's church provided for fifth grade on down. We had children's church last week, so we don't have it today. So we'll all stay in here and we're going to pick up. We'll resume with children's church, not next Sunday because it's the fifth Sunday, but the first of February and two weeks so i'd invite even the the kiddos fifth grade on down if you got a bible to follow along because if you like science fiction i have something better for you today it's more exciting than science fiction and it is true that's what sets it apart is different and that's revelation 17 which is where we're going to be uh, for those of you who haven't been with us we've been going through the book of revelation for several months recently a chapter at a time uh, this amazing revelation that God gave John the Apostle at the end of his life about the future. It's how everything ends. That's why this book is at the end of the Bible because it's the conclusion, climax, result to world history, God's plan. It's very exciting. Remember when I became a Christian at age 19 and read Revelation for the first time in my life, I was just, I was thrilled. It was, it was awesome. It was eye-opening. It was really life-changing. And for many years when I was first a Christian, Revelation was my favorite book. I didn't understand why Christians didn't read it. Uh, it's not scary. It's not frightening. It's not morbid. It's not sad, at least for the Christian. For the Christian, the overcomer, it was nothing but good news because it tells us in the end how things are concluded and they end with victory. That word is used many times in the book of Revelation. Jesus and those who know Him overcome in the end. Jesus wins. I mean, how can you not be excited and encouraged about that if you are a Christian? And that's why for many years, Revelation was my favorite book because it was so encouraging and exciting that this history was going somewhere. God was in control and the end result for the believer was nothing but good news. And that was the intent that God gave this book to the church. And so we need to remember as we conclude this book, and actually we're at a, a difficult part of this book in Revelation 17 and 18 in terms of interpretation. We need to remember the original audience and why God gave this book. Because way back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, God said that blessed are those who read this book. You want to be blessed? Then study Revelation. Blessed are those who read, who hear, and apply or do this book. So that's why Christians should study Revelation, be excited about it, to be blessed by God, to be encouraged, to be given a proper worldview of this life, how transitory it is, how powerful God is, and what awaits us in the future, which is ultimate glory that is awesome that is exciting but not everybody's excited about studying the book of revelation that's sad um and i'm reminded of a verse in first corinthians 2 i wanted to read two verses before i got to the old testament passages keeping in mind the original audience uh, in about 95 a.d when john wrote this he was writing to churches in asia minor modern day turkey to seven churches that were being persecuted there's when you find out who a true christian is and who isn't when you're living in persecuted circumstances, persecution vets out false believers. 
And that's what was going on in John's day. And so one of the main reasons God was writing the book of Revelation to these seven churches was to encourage persecuted Christians, to give them hope, not just in this life, but more so in the future. So the original audience were true believers who were being persecuted, who welcomed the truth of Revelation and were blessed by it and applied it to their life. And they couldn't get enough and they hungered for the truth of the Word of God. But not all people respond like that when they hear the truth of Revelation. Uh, I was thinking about that as I was studying Revelation 17 this week. There's a lot of imagery, a lot of actually weird imagery at first blush as you read it. If you don't understand the context, if you don't understand the Old Testament that lays the foundation for all this imagery. And I was thinking, man, if I just take a straightforward approach to interpreting Revelation 17 at face value, I know what the response of the world for the most part will be. And that's, you're an idiot, McManus. That is how foolish, how fanciful. How can you believe this? This is corny. This is ridiculous. This is imagination. That's what the world would say about our view of Scripture. I said idiot, idios. That's a Greek word. It means foolishness. And that's the view of the world. And what they think about us as Christians, they think we're buffoons. And they think the Scriptures, we believe, if we take them literally, is idiotic. It is absolute foolishness. I didn't say that. God did. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14, Paul is talking about as an apostle who's giving written revelation to the churches and to Christians. And he says, you know what, Christians, you believe this. This came from God, but be warned, the world isn't going to believe it. They're actually going to think what you teach and believe is foolishness. And that's why 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this. But a natural man, that's an unbeliever. An unbeliever, when they hear these Christian things out of Scripture, revealed by God, when an unbeliever, when a natural man does not Oh, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. What is that? That is revelation, scriptural truth, given by the Holy Spirit of God. This includes the book of Revelation. So literally, you could say an unbeliever does not accept the things of the book of Revelation as God gave it through the Holy Spirit, now written in your Bible. The unbelieving world, not only do they not accept it, it's worse than that. It's not just a neutral non-acceptance. Verse 14. They are considered foolishness to the unbeliever. Scripture is considered foolish. And so as we study Revelation 17 and the interpretation I give and the results that we come to will be considered foolishness by unbelievers. And therefore, he can't understand them, can't comprehend it. Why? Because what I'm revealing in Revelation 17, according to Paul, is spiritually discerned, spiritually appraised. If you don't have the Holy Spirit of God living in you to illuminate your understanding, there is no way in the world you can unlock the spiritual truth that is revealed in Revelation 17. And as a result, it'll be incomprehensible and it'll be utter foolishness. Or another thing it might be in the book of Revelation, it might be too convicting for the unbeliever. So this shadow of guilt will hang over them and they will push it away and they don't want anything to do with it. All this judgment and wrath and and angry God stuff. Why would the unbelieving world want to hear that? I just want a God of love, love, love. Um, So that's just a good reminder. So the Christian has the ability supernaturally because of the help of the Holy Spirit to understand even a book like, like Revelation and even these difficult chapters of Revelation 17 and 18. And our, our desire, our heart's desire should be what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed is the one who hungers for righteousness. Hungers, desires, passionately desires the truth of the Bible. So that's a good reminder and diagnostic check of our own heart and our own, own attitude towards Scripture. What has our response been so far after 17 
16 chapters of the study of the book of Revelation. Has it encouraged us? Has it made us excited? Have you desired and hungered more? Or has it caused guilt in your life, fear, disbelief, or an attitude of, "Mm, I don't want any of that, it's foolishness. It's a good gauge of where our heart is at according to Scripture. Well, with that, let's go ahead and go to Revelation 17 now. And we're going to go through 1 through 18. And I divide that chapter up really into three main characters that I want to look at. And I called Revelation 17 Mystery Babylon because that's what the Scripture says in that chapter. This chapter is about an entity called Mystery Babylon. Three main characters I want to talk about are is a harlot that is revealed, a woman, some kind of woman is described. Who is that? And then the beast, which we'll see is the Antichrist. And then finally, uh, these kings, ten kings that are in cahoots with the beast we're going to talk about. So those are the three main characters really in the big picture of Revelation 17. But before we get to the details of it, uh, the book of Revelation chapter 17 alludes to many, many passages in the Old Testament where the foundation is uh, one of those. I want to just read a passage out of Genesis 10 if you've got your Bible there. Looking at Genesis chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Uh, This is right after uh, Noah got off the ark. Yes, Noah was real. The ark was real. The flood was real. Uh, It lasted, uh, he was in the ark for over a year, came off the ark. God blessed him and his seven family members, and God began anew. And then shortly after the time of Noah, Noah had some descendants. Uh, One of the descendants of Noah was a man named Cush. Uh, So in Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, Cush, a descendant of Noah, became the father of a guy named Nimrod. Hey, there's a name for one of your babies. Um, Nimrod. Don't, he, uh, he was not a sissy. He became a mighty one on the earth. So if you, may, you were going to make fun of Nimrod's name, you weren't going to do it to his face. He'd take you down. Uh, he became a mighty influential person on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He's just had this amazing reputation of being one rough, rugged, probably violent dude in his day. Get this, verse 10. And the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was called Babel. That's where we get the word Babylon. It was even located where Babylon exists, over by the Euphrates River, modern-day Iraq. This is a real place, geographically a real city, Babel, which became Babylon, headquarters of Nimrod. Flip over to Genesis chapter 11. So this is like 2,500 years before Christ. This is 4,500 years ago. In the days of Nimrod, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, whatever that language was, and it came about as they journeyed east. He found a plain in the land of Shinar, which is over by Babylon, modern-day Iraq, Babel, where Nimrod lived. And over there in their headquarters, they said to one another, Hey, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used uh, tar for mortar. And they said, Hey, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Hey, let's go to heaven. Let's build a tower up to heaven so we can become like God. This was a religious endeavor. It was a crass, self-centered, disobedient religious endeavor that defied the one creator God of the universe. And they tried to build the Tower of Babel. Verse 5, And the Lord came down, that's the triune God of the universe, came down to the city where they were doing this and watched their endeavors and the intent of their heart. Verse 6, And the Lord God said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. And here's what the triune God of the universe, this is God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit communing with each other, speaking 
in stereo and in unity. Verse 7. Come, let us, the triune God of the universe, go down and there confuse their languages. Why do we have all these languages today? It happened right here. In order that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord Yahweh scattered all these people abroad from over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city and therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And by the way, there's where false religion began. False religion has been around in all kinds of manifestations for 4,500 years and Satan has chosen Babel or Babylon historically to be his headquarters. So we've had false religion ever since then, thanks to Nimrod, his cohorts, and it was located in Babel or Babylon, and false religion has been a foothold of false religion, or Babylon has been a foothold of false religion for 4,500 years, and Revelation 17 tells us that false religion is going to culminate in a worldwide religion that opposes God that's going to be actually headquartered in Babylon, literal Babylon by the Euphrates River, which still exists today. So that is the history of Babylon and false religion. Uh, two other passages that I want to take you to. Let's go to Isaiah, and then we'll go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 13. I mean, I could take you to Jeremiah. I could take you to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Nahum. There's probably eight prophetic books uh, that all have references that are picked up on in Revelation 17. We just don't have time. But in Isaiah 13... This is an oracle from God and it is a judgment oracle. And it is a prophecy made by God of how God is going to someday judge Babylon. And this is the literal Babylon over by the Euphrates River. This prophecy, if you read it in detail, for 16 verses has not been totally fulfilled. It hasn't been fulfilled. So it hasn't happened yet. So it's got to happen. Otherwise, God is a liar. Therefore, this future, this prophecy is going to be fulfilled to the T in the future. And I would assert that Revelation 17 is the fulfillment of this oracle in Isaiah 13 that Isaiah gave 700 years before Christ. And I just want to highlight a couple of verses in this prophetic oracle, starting at verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon. It's against Babylon. God is mad. He's angry at Babylon for its false religion, for its compromise, for enticing people all over the world into false religion and idolatry. So it's an oracle of judgment concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos. Uh, saw verse 4 and a sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people a sound of the uproar of kingdoms of nations gathered together this is a prediction that there's going to god is going to gather the nations of the world together for a battle a world war this is in the future the end of verse 4 the lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle god's bringing this confederacy together for a battle of the world and the gentile pagan unbelieving armies of the world and kings of the world against Jesus Christ the Messiah at His second coming. Verse 5, they are coming from a far country all over the place. Verse 6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord, that's a prophetic phrase to the end times or a time of judgment or a time of fulfillment. So that's the context. The day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel, with fury and burning anger. We see that in Revelation 17 and 18 in detail. Verse 11, Thus I will punish the world for its evil. That's God talking. And the wicked for their iniquity. Verse 13, Therefore I shall make the heavens tremble. It's going to be worldwide in its devastation and impact. This day is coming and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. Wow. Judgment 
against Babylon. That happens in Revelation 17. We're going to see that. One more Old Testament passage. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Uh, We've read this before, so I'm not going to read all of it, but just to remind you, Daniel is to the Old Testament as Revelation is to the New Testament. Much of Daniel is prophetic, and it's prophetic about the end times, the tribulation, the coming Antichrist that hasn't happened yet, this seven-year period at the end of world history. Daniel is the one that tells us it's seven years long. Daniel was a prophet in Babylon in a Gentile kingdom as a slave, and yet he rose to power and was used by God in the court of kings. And God gave him the unique ability to interpret dreams supernaturally. Just because Daniel could do it, don't think you can do it. Don't start trying to interpret your own dreams. Number one, you'll be confused. Number two, you'll come to wrong conclusions. But Daniel had the gift, a gift from God, because he was a prophet. Um, And so the king has this dream of four ghastly beasts. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. And the fourth beast was, it was different than the, the first three. It was terrifying, extremely strong. The end of verse 7, it says it had ten horns. Ten horns. Well, what are the ten horns? Well, Daniel is given the ability to interpret the dream by the king, supernaturally. He tells us what the beasts are. They are kings and kingdoms on the earth, Gentile unbelieving kingdoms that hate God's people. It even tells us what the ten horns are. So if you look at Daniel 7, down at verse 20, he gives the meaning of the ten horns. Well, what is the meaning of the ten horns? Verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush. He's talking about the coming Antichrist of the future seven-year tribulation. And the beast, the Antichrist, in this vision has ten horns. It's the same vision that John has in Revelation. Verse 24, what are these ten horns? Well, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. So what are the ten horns? Ten horns represent ten kings. And they are ten kings at the time of the Antichrist, at the end of the age, at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That's what the ten horns picture. We're going to see those same ten horns in revelation 17 and at the end of verse 25 it says that the antichrist is going to reign for time times and half a time a time that's one year times that's two years half a time that's a total of three and a half years which is consistent with 42 months given in revelation the last three and a half year period especially at the very end where there's this crescendo of madness led by the antichrist who's literally indwelt by satan himself so With that background about false religion, judgment on Babylon at the end of the age, and the visions of Daniel, let's go to Revelation 17, and hopefully now as we read it, some things might make a little more sense, a little more quickly than just reading it cold turkey. And we're going to take it in three chunks. There's a lot there. We're not going to go into every nitty-gritty detail to try to get some spiritual interpretation. I'm just looking at big picture things here of what's going on in Revelation 17. The first thing you need to know about the big picture of Revelation 17 is really Revelation 17, 18, and 19, they go together. And what Revelation 17... Remember, when John wrote this down, he didn't write chapter and verse breaks. So from a literary point of view, 17, 18, and 19 is a narrative that all goes together and is intended to stay together. And it's explanatory. And what 17, 18, and 19 explains in Revelation 
It explains the sixth bowl judgment of Revelation 16, verse 12, and the seventh bowl judgment that is poured out at the end of the age. Specifically, when the sixth bowl is poured out by an angel on the Euphrates River, and the river is dried up for the battle of Armageddon that happens at the end of the tribulation. And then the seventh angel pours out his bowl on the earth at that time, and what happens? There's all these amazing worldwide disasters in nature, and what's going on in verse 19 of Revelation 16 in the seventh bowl judgment is the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and Babylon the great was remembered before God. So what happened in judgment number seven of the bowl judgments was God judges Babylon once and for all. And at this time in the future, at the seven year tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, Babylon over by Iraq, by the Euphrates River, will be the capital city of the world. That's where the Antichrist will be headquartered. That's where all the false religion will be headquartered. That's where all politics will happen. Commercial, industry, economy, money, everything is going to be around the hub of Babylon in the future by the Euphrates River. This is literal. And God is going to judge it. He's going to strike. And so 17, 18, 19 describes how Babylon will be judged in the future. This is how world history ends. It is amazing and it goes into incredible graphic detail. Uh, it is similar to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, you get the big picture. You get the panorama of God, how God created everything, generally speaking. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, and then God rested on the 7th. And then it's like He takes the telescope and zooms in on day 6 in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 doesn't contradict Genesis 1. Genesis 2 explains part of chapter 1 in Genesis. And it explains day six, the details of how man and woman made in the image of God were created. It's amazing. And the purpose for which they were created. And that is exactly what's going on here. Gen Revelation 16 is big picture of these seven bold judgments at the end of the tribulation. 17, 18, and 19 zooms in on the details of bold judgment number six and seven and the judgment upon headquarters of earth at that time, which is Babylon. So let's go ahead and look at it. And the key parties involved in this coming worldwide apostasy and antagonism to God. The first is verses 1 through 6, which talks about the harlot of mystery Babylon. The harlot of mystery Babylon. This woman, John sees someone. Well, who is this woman? What is she? Well, she represents not a literal woman. A, he sees a literal woman in his vision, but the vision represents something else. And he explains what the woman is. Uh, at the end of verse 18 in chapter 17, John says the woman that he sees at the beginning of the chapter, the woman whom you saw is the great city. That's Babylon. So the woman represents a city and Babylon represents a city that has been the center of false religion for all of world history. So that's what this woman represents. So the harlot of mystery Babylon is false religion. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, see, it's a specific angel of the seven bowl judgments coming to explain more in detail about bowls six and bowl seven of what's going to happen. One of the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot, the judgment upon Babylon in the future, who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So the angel carried me away in the spirit. Four times John uses that phrase, in the spirit. That means in a prophetic chant, trance, uh, trance of some sort. Where God 
revealed supernaturally, divine revelation to John as an apostle in the spirit. Can't explain it more than that because I don't know anything about it because I've never been in the spirit. I've never been in a prophetic uh, trance. I'm not a prophet. I just read what the prophets wrote. This is direct revelation. Carried away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman. She's not a nice woman. She's sitting on a scarlet or red beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. So the beast she's riding is like a dragon. It's got just this grotesque animal with seven heads. It's got ten horns, either on one head or on all the horns, or on all the heads. Verse four. The woman riding on top of this ghastly beast was clothed in purple and scarlet, was adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup of the abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her head, a name was written, a uh, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and on the abominations of the earth. In my Bible, all those letters are capitalized of what's written on her forehead. Boy, some people are just real brash and bold about advertising who they are and what they stand for, aren't they? People that have bumper stickers on their cars, they're like that. Those outgoing types? But talk about putting it on your forehead. Talk about no conscience, seared conscience, plastered on the forehead, the most obvious and the first thing seen when you look at a person, tattooed on the forehead, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered. I was in awe. I was amazed. I was awestruck. Speechless almost. When he saw the vision. So let's go ahead and look at this. And I do want to zero in on the main character here. And that is this woman. Who is this woman? What does she represent? Uh, well, I already referred to it. Specifically, the text in verse 18 says that it refers to the woman represents a city. And that is Babylon. We know that from the text. And we know historically that that's where false religion began in Babylon. All false religion. Whether it's pagan religion or deviant Christian forms of false religion. Babylon has been headquarters all throughout the earth. All throughout the Old Testament, Babylon and its false religion was always enticing Israelites and the Jews into sin. So Babylon's been a perpetual nemesis and enemy of God and God's people. Historically speaking, and that's where this future world religion is going to culminate as its headquarters, literally in Babylon. It's, it's no coincidence that even today, the hotbed of all political, economic, world activity and in, in the headlines is over in the Middle East, over in Iraq, over by the Euphrates River. That is not by chance. That's not coincidence. That's reality. God is setting the stage for how everything's going to end in world history. We know this. God is telling us. It's amazing. It's comforting to know the truth and how it's all going to end. So it goes on, starting at verse 1. So one of the seven angels, uh, seven bulls, said, Come here, and I'm going to show you the judgment of this great harlot who sits on many waters. So there's this woman. She sits literally on the coast by many waters. And many waters, according to the text itself, just refers to the people of the world. That's verse 15. What are the many waters she sits on? Well, verse 15. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's all. In other words, this is universal. This Future world religion that headquarters in Babylon is universal in impact, sway, and it's binding universally because that's what the waters represent. Why the waters? Why is the waters referring to universal peoples? Because 75% of the earth is covered with water. Every continent on planet earth touches water. And many times in the Old Testament, that's what water represents. It represents the peoples of the earth. So this is speaking of the universal nature of this future prophecy. This isn't localized at the Mediterranean Sea 
and the people in some rinky-dink place called Palestine. This is worldwide in its impact. Many waters. Babylon, verse 2, and with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. So this, this woman, somehow with her intrigue and enticing capabilities in terms of a religious persuasion, she entices the kings of the world to participate with her in her false religion. Again, this is speaking of the future. So sometime during the seven-year tribulation, probably the last three-and-a-half-year period, there is going to be this worldwide revival in false religion. And that's what this is talking about. And somehow, for some reason, it's going to be headquartered in Babylon. The reason is, is because the Antichrist, that's where his headquarters are going to be. He chooses to have his headquarters there. And the Antichrist is called the beast in this passage. And the beast is married to this woman. They are inextricably tied. The beast, which is Antichrist, at the beginning of his three-and-a-half-year ministry, he uses religion. He professes a religion. Eventually, he denies this religion. He recants of this religion because up to that point, he gets to a point where religion has served its purpose. So he's pragmatic. He's crass. But he's going to use religion for his purposes. Did you know that Adolf Hitler did the exact same thing? Born and raised as a Roman Catholic. Baptized, altar boy, all that stuff. He never renounced his Catholicism or Christianity until he had 15 years into his dictatorship. Finally got to a point and realized, I don't need this religion anymore. And he banned the Bible from Germany. But to, to get to the rise to power... Hitler used religion. He used Christianity. He used the Bible. He twisted and distorted it, but he used religion to get what he needed. Then when he got where he wanted, he shedded it out of its existence there in Germany. It's amazing. And if you look at tyrants all throughout world history, they do the same thing. They use religion when it's convenient. Saddam Hussein did the exact same thing. People who know the religion of Islam, when they examine the life of Saddam Hussein, who professed to be a Muslim, and they look at his life, they say, even Muslims say this, he was not a very good Muslim. Why not? Because he was not a consistent Muslim. It seemed like he only used Islam when it was convenient for him, and that's exactly what he did. To provoke hatred towards Jews, or hatred towards his enemies, or hatred towards Christianity, then he invoked the name of Allah. But then when he got to, when he consolidated power and became a dictator, and everybody feared him, he didn't have use for religion or Islam anymore. This is exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. So at the beginning of his reign, he's going to use, he's going to be wed to, married to Babylon, meaning false religion. He's going to promote a false religion, even with the prophet in the future, to consolidate, gain power. Why? Because you need to do that with people, the masses. How can you win the whole world over in allegiance and loyalty to yourself? The way you do it is through religion. Why? Because God has made every single human being in his image and every single human being born in this world is inescapably and inherently, innately a religious being. We all must worship something. If it's not the true God, it's going to be something else. Even atheists are inescapably religious. And that's what's going to happen here. There's going to be a worldwide religion that people are passionately and to the death committed to. That blows me away in light of the advances that we're making in society in terms of technology and science and evolution, we don't need religion anymore. There are atheists telling us that. Richard Dawkins is telling us. Because of technology and the advances we're making, even Karl Marx said the same thing. We don't need religion anymore. Religion is a crutch, in the words of Ted Turner. Yet with all this technological advancement and enlightenment and the truth of evolution being bought 
all over the place, all over the world in every facet of life, we can't escape our commitment to religion. Even with all of our materialism and everything else, we're trying to fill the void. Just look at all the movie stars. They can't get away from religion. Madonna, she's had it all for decades, and she is inescapably religious. If you look into her personal life, studying the cult, worshiping dead people, studying the Kabbalah, that's Madonna. Her Tom Cruise, the most successful actor there is. He's got everything he needs. What does he need religion for? Well, he does. He's trying to find meaning and purpose in religion. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the future. Communism was trying to, and the Soviet Union, stamp out religion for 70 years. Communist China has been trying to eradicate religion for as long as it's been in existence. It ain't going to. So religion is alive and well on planet Earth because it's in the heart of every human being made in God's image. So the Antichrist is actually going to use religion to accomplish his goals and then jettison it at the last minute. We're going to see that. So that's who this woman is. She represents worldwide religion. False religion that is opposed to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel and believers during that time. Verse 2. What about this religious system that the Antichrist uses? Well, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. It's going to be an immoral religion. Immorality, immorality. Immo Seven times in this passage the word porneia is used. That's the Greek word. Porneia is where we get the word pornography. It's just sexual immorality of all kinds. Deviant sexual behavior. Did you know that the mark of false religion always has deviant sexual immorality at the very backbone and the heart of that religion? False religion. All of it. It doesn't matter. From one extreme to the other. From Hinduism and Roman Catholicism that say that abstinence or celibacy, I should say, lifts you to a higher plane of spirituality. That's false. According to Timothy, Timothy that's the doctrine of demons. To the other extreme of sexual rampant sexual immorality that's seen as spiritual, like in Islam. If you die as a martyr, you're catapult and ushered immediately into the presence of Allah. And you, as a young man, if you've murdered some non-Muslim people and you're a martyr for your faith, then you'll be rewarded with 70 virgins to have physical intimacy for all eternity. That is a perversion of sexuality as God has created it. Or to Mormonism that says that when you die in this life, if you live a good Mormon life in the next life, you can be married to many women for all eternity. Really? So sexual immorality, a distortion of God's beautiful gift of sex, is always at the heart of false religion. And that's going to be true of this Antichrist and his kingdom as well. So there's going to be a proliferation of sexual immorality. It's going to be blatant. It is going to be rampant. It's going to be out there in front. I mean, we're already on the path of that, aren't we? Just turn your television on. No, turn your television off. My bad. Rampant, blatant Immorality and a perversion of God's gift of sex. That's what's going to characterize uh, this wedding. What else characterized? I mean, this uh, false religion. Verse 3, Then he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman, so here she is, this false religion in Babylon, used by the Antichrist, on a scarlet beast. So the, the beast controls this religion. He uses this religion. Full of blasphemous names. It, it's a deliberate mockery of God is this false religion. Not all religions don't lead to the same place. False religion is a mockery to God. It is blasphemy. That's what it says. Blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. That is royalty. That is opulence. That is money. That is materialism. Adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. That is materialistic wealth. Rich. This world religion in the future is going to have money and resources. It's going to be materialistic and it's going to have 
earthly resources. And that always also goes along with many false religions. When they put an emphasis on material wealth and possessions that'll characterize this false religion in the future. They're going to have a lot of wealth. And over in the Middle East, there's a lot of uh, oil to be owned and had, right? You go over there, we know that dictators, many of them, like Saddam Hussein, when they finally got rid of him and they invaded all of his 50-plus palaces, palatial mansions, and they found in his own personal residence a treasure chest with, get this, $8 billion of American cash just in that one little treasure chest at his house. Wealth, opulence, gained through murdering people over time is really how it happened. Having in her hand a cup of gold uh, full of abominations, the unclean things of her immorality and upon her forehead. Verse 6, another characteristic thing about this false religion I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. It's going to hate God's people. It's going to hate the name of Jesus. It is going to hate scriptural truth. It is going to hate believers. It's going to hate the church. It's going to hate Christianity, its legacy, its history. And they were literally become bloodthirsty and killing Christians. You know, that's, that goes on today. You can go on the Internet, on YouTube, and click on certain websites where they show you that Christians are literally being beheaded with the sword in cold blood, calling out the name of Allah before they strike off the head of the Christian publicizing it, celebrating it in the streets. It's going to be at a universal level in the future. It's just ghastly and there will have been nothing like it in the history of the world. And that's why it's going to be just for a short time because God wants to spare the earth of this rampage of death that runs amok over people who are believers at that time on earth. So this woman and this false religion uh, will be guilty of the blood of the saints, murdering believers with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. So here's a basic character of the future world religion that will dominate planet Earth that the Antichrist will use to consolidate all power. Uh, its capital will be headquartered in Babylon in the Middle East, literally. Uh, its main doctrine is that it will hate Jesus. Get that. Its main doctrine. It will hate Jesus and followers of Jesus. It will be engulfed in idol worship. Idols everywhere. You know, and that's also typical of dictators, isn't it? You go around the world. I remember the Ayatollah Khomeini in the days of Iran. You go into Iran and all you see are pictures of himself, 75-foot pictures of himself everywhere. You have to give allegiance to the idol of the dictator because of his ego. Well, the Antichrist isn't going to be any different. He's going to make an idol to himself. Idol worship will proliferate. It'll be awash in sexual immorality and deviant behavior. It'll be a totalitarian religion and regime. So total intolerance for other views. And they say Christians are intolerant. It'll be a violent religion. Like Islam is a violent religion. Cut off the heads of the Christians and the Jews. So says the Muslim proverb. And this future world religion will be rich. It'll be materialistic. And it will demand worship of the beast. And there will be an outward mark of your allegiance to it. A 666 or it's like on your wrist or on your forehead. That is the caricature, actually the profile of this future world religion that is coming that the Antichrist is going to use. So that is who uh, the harlot is. False religion in the future. Let's go ahead and look at the second point there. And that's probably the most difficult part of this chapter. 7 through 11 is the beast of the mystery Babylon, and that is the Antichrist who uses this false religion. 7 through 11. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? Why are you so amazed, John? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. By the way, the word mystery in verse 7 means a truth being revealed for the first time by God. 
It's not hidden anymore. It's been revealed. And that's God is revealing truth here that we hadn't seen in the Old Testament or in the New Testament up to this point. God's giving new information. Uh, verse 8, John's not going to be in the dark anymore. Well, the beast, which you saw, was actually the beast of Revelation 13. We already talked about this beast. It's the same beast of Revelation 7. We determined that it was the Antichrist. He's going to make uh, an appeal to the Israelites, of the Jews, at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. He's going to make a treaty with them. He's going to earn their trust. And he's going to earn the trust of the world through religion and being somewhat passive, not a violent man. And then three and a half years into his reign, he's going to, something supernatural is going to happen to the Antichrist. And what happens supernaturally is in verse 8. The beast, the Antichrist that you saw, was... This is a prophecy of what it's going to be like in the future. He's going to exist for three and a half years. Consolidating power, the Antichrist. He was and is not. Something is going to happen to the Antichrist. He's going to die. That's what that means. He's going to be killed. Fatal wound, Revelation 13. And he's about to come up out of the abyss. He's going to be resurrected. We saw that in Revelation chapter 13 three times. The Antichrist in the future is going to die. He's going to be killed. He's going to receive a fatal wound and he's going to come back to life. How does he come back to life? Supernaturally through satanic demonic power. And that's why the whole world is awed and amazed by him. It's a counterfeit resurrection or a satanic resurrection, if you will. And as a result, he wins the allegiance and the fear of all people. The beast that you saw was and is not is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. Destruction is perdition, which is going to happen in Revelation 19, 19 and 20 when Jesus kills him. And earth dwellers will wonder or be amazed whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. They're going to be worshiping this Antichrist when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come that he resurrected from the dead. It's amazing. Never happened in the history of the world. Verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads and are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Seven heads are seven mountains. Well, the seven heads represent something. Well, they represent mountains. But the mountains also represent something. So it's like a double metaphor. Well, what are the seven mountains? Well, verse 10. The seven heads and seven mountains are seven kings or seven kingdoms. We saw this in Daniel 7. Five have fallen. John. He's talking to John in his day. John. Historically, five satanic kingdoms. Babylon. Assyria. I mean, sorry. Egypt. Assyria. Babylon. Medo-Persia. And Greece. All existed in Bible times in the Old Testament. Five have fallen. They don't exist anymore. One is. That's the Roman Empire in which you live, John. And there's one more, a seventh. It is yet to come. It is future. And it happens and rises to power during the seven-year tribulation. And when he comes, notice it's personalized because it's headed by the Antichrist. He must remain a short while. His reign will be very short, unlike all those previous kings and kingdoms. Verse 11. And the beast which, you, and the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth kingdom. So the Antichrist represents the seventh kingdom at the beginning of the tribulation. And then at the midpoint, after he dies and comes back from the dead, he consolidates and heads a new eighth kingdom. Don't get confused. So the Antichrist is the seventh and an eighth kingdom and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. His day is coming. God is in charge. God is in control. So number two, the scope or uh, the beast of mystery Babylon is the Antichrist. And then finally, number three, the scope of mystery Babylon. The whole world. 12 through 18, this isn't localized. This didn't happen just in Rome 2,000 years ago. This is yet future. And it will encompass every nation, people, and tongue. That's what verse 15 says. Let's start with verse 10. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. 
These are real kings. They are future. Revelation 19.19 tells us they are real kings that Jesus is going to kill at His second coming. These ten kings make alliances with the Antichrist. These ten kings help prop up the power of the Antichrist. They help the Antichrist. And the ten king, uh, horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. They're future, John. They're in the tribulation. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So God, God gives them authority for a short period of time. Verse 13. These kings, they have one purpose. That they give their power and authority to the beast. Verse 14. These will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them. So what unifies these prideful, arrogant, conniving, unbelieving kings in the future, the one thing that unifies them is their hatred for Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's exactly what happened to Herod and Pilate. They hated each other, but boy, we both hate Jesus. Let's be friends. And that's what goes on here. They, they will have allegiance to the Antichrist because they all hate the Lamb. They all hate the followers of the Lamb. Therefore, let's throw in our lot with the Antichrist and we'll all overpower the Lamb and His followers. Verse 14, they'll wage war against the Lamb at the Battle of Armageddon. Yet, Jesus will win. He will overcome them because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with Him, that's me, that's you if you're a believer are the called and chosen and faithful and also overcomers. Verse 15, And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. This is universal in its impact. This will cover the whole world in the future. No one will escape its impact. Verse 16, And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot. See, they had religion. They used religion for about three years, three and a half years. Now, okay, I've had enough of religion. We're sufficient now. Let's get rid of this religion. And they will make her desolate. They're going to get rid of their religion. They're going to become self-professed atheists. Or actually, they're going to make everybody worship the Antichrist. That means they'll probably have all these influential religious leaders that they're going to slaughter and kill that they have no more use for. Hitler did that. And they will make her desolate and naked. They will eat uh, and will eat her flesh, will burn up with fire. So all the religious elements are going to be banned and done away with. But fear not, Christian, when you hear all this because of verse 17. Why is all this happening? Here's the reason why. This is Romans 8:28, Revelation 17:17. 17, 17. For God has put it in the hearts of these kings to execute, notice, God's purposes. Isn't that amazing? God is in charge of every, all of this every step of the way. This is God's plan. This is prophecy being fulfilled. This is leading somewhere. This is leading to a good conclusion. This is leading to the coronation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Lord, King of Kings. God has put it in the hearts of them to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. So everything is right on track. But it all seems so bad and scary and eerie and yucky. Well, you could say that about the week you had maybe, right? And that's the bad news. The good news is the same truth applies. God is in control. God works all things for good. For those who know and love Him. Totally sovereign. That is awesome. Until the words of God should be fulfilled. Verse 18, And the woman whom you saw is the great city, which is Babylon, which reigns over the kings of the earth. So chapter 17 was are the religious components of this final empire. And the next week we're going to look at Revelation 18, which is actually the economics of this final world empire and how God judges both. It's religion 
and its economy. And he gives it the death nail, all in preparation for exalting his anointed son, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, in fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, when Jesus will reign as king on earth for 1,000 years. And if you know Jesus Christ personally, you're going to reign with him in glory. That is an awesome, blessed truth. And let's take that with us this week into the Father in prayer. Father, we do thank you for our time together. Thank you for the word of God. And again, Lord, thank you for not leaving us to our own finite understanding and trying to comprehend prophetic scripture, which is actually very difficult. So God, be our teacher. Help us to just take away basic truths from this that we can be encouraged. If we know Jesus Christ, we're on the winning side. We are an overcomer because Christ Jesus overcome, overcame by his death and resurrection. We thank you for that. Thank you also for revealing the future to us. We know how it ends. We know where it's going. And God, thank you for that last verse in 17, reminding us, despite what's going on around us and around the world, you are always totally, sovereignly, perfectly in control. And God, help us to live our lives on that rock of stability, even this afternoon, let alone the rest of this week. We commit all things to you for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.